in a sense, the motivation for measuring multidimensional poverty. Um, and there are multiple motivations. And so we begin where we must begin, which is, in a sense, with an ethical motivation. Um, and it really comes from the fact that poverty measures to do their job must reflect poverty. Um, and as Martin Sen put it, human lives are battered and diminished in all kinds of different ways. And this, this fact is relevant for uh, approaches to measure poverty. There are other ways or other kinds of arguments that also are trying to look at this. For example, some of you may know that in the run-up to the post-2015 discussions, there was an online voting um, system of million voices, um, which basically asked people to vote on which of these different dimensions were aspects of poverty. And the um, votes, for example, the highest vote was given to a good education, the next highest to better health care. Um, and Helen Clark summarized the results of the study of Million Voices by saying that there is a clear message from them and that eradicating poverty and hunger, achieving gender parity, improving health and education are remain foremost in people's priorities. And so this is a broad um, civil society initiative, but really not focused on poor people, but focused on those who had access to the internet and the awareness and interest in responding to such an online survey. But of course, there are many, many participatory exercises which have tried to elicit from poor people and communities their understandings and analysis of poverty and impoverishment. Perhaps the most well-known of these is the Voices of the Poor study, which was released in 2000, the year 2000, um, and conducted by Deepa Narayan, Patti Patesh, Robert Chambers, and others associated with the World Bank. And in that study, they identified people who were poor according to the local community standards, and they gathered those people and asked whether they self-identified as poor. And if they did, then they inquired about the dimensions of ill-being and the dimensions of well-being. And we'll be looking a little bit more at these on Wednesday. But here are some examples. Uh, youth in Ecuador spoke of poverty as being unable to think of the future because you're concerned with surviving the present. A woman in the Philippines spoke of cutting down on her own consumption of food to provide for family members. In Bangladesh, it was the in a sense, the social um, discrimination against the poor that they had to wait to obtain social services. Um, and youth in Nigeria gave a penetrating analysis of their own situation of poverty as deriving, in a sense, from the parents' lack of education. And in Brazil, um, a woman drew attention to violence. These are anecdotal, um, and yet when we drew together, or when that study drew together, anecdotes from 60 countries and 60,000 people, there was some body of literature um, that was, in a sense, corroborating the different dimensions of ill-being and well-being. And they named in the different studies, Can Anyone Hear Us was the first, um, between five and 12 dimensions of poverty from that study. And so the first motivation to look at the many dimensions of poverty, in a sense, derives from a normative motivation, that that seems to be how poor people experience it. It seems to be 
um, how analysts understand it and even people in wider civil society perceive it. So we'll be discussing more about the normative motivations and the conceptual frameworks on Wednesday, but for now I would like to focus on some of the other motivations and in particular technical, empirical and policy motivations. Um, in terms of technical, it's just really the constraints, the data and the computational power. Empirical it will be the most of the bulk of this uh, presentation. Uh, can we summarize information on poverty in any single indicator? Because if we could, regardless if that was a monetary indicator or if that was an indicator like life expectancy or if that was an indicator uh, an, uh, of something else, if we could summarize all of the information into a single measure that was easy to compute, being people who care about parsimony and simplicity, we would do so. And so we need to then go to the empirical evidence to understand how and when multidimensional analyses add value to single-dimensional analyses. And the third is um, to recognize that multidimensional poverty measures meet policy demands I'll simply name this at the end of this presentation and tomorrow when we have presentations on national measures and how these are actually used, be it for targeting or policy coordination or monitoring, you'll get much more of a sense of the policy demands. So those are the seven or the eight arguments we'll go through with the most time being spent on the empirical uh, discussions. So first of all, um, I don't know how much you know about the, house, the, the history of different surveys. Obviously, there have been censuses for more than 2,000 years um, and household surveys for a long time. Um, but in a sense, internationally comparable household surveys were quite late, starting in the mid-1980s, um, 1984, 1985, um, for the Living Standards Measurement Surveys, for example. Um, and there has been a great increase in both internationally comparable household surveys and in national household surveys, in a sense, since the 1980s. Um, and the multi-topic household surveys are most often used at present for multidimensional poverty measures, but also income and consumption and expenditure surveys often also have rel relevant <coughs> variables. And both kinds of surveys have increased significantly. Um, also, much more recently, we are able at times to merge those household surveys with other kinds of data. These could be from the community-based surveys of institutions, health and education, clinics, whatever, uh, in the communities. It could also be data which are merged using GIS factors or data um, which are merged from administrative sources in a geographical region. And so we can talk a little bit more as the week goes on about how to enrich the data set accurately with data that are representative at the correct unit of analysis for that kind of work. Um, and also, the power of laptops has increased. You probably know that in 1989, um, the power which is now present in a PlayStation 3 um, computationally would, you know, required something that sat on the roof of a building was really the size of a building. And yet now on our laptops we can process our household surveys, not instantly, 
um, Ophi can say, uh, with experience, but, but rather quickly in comparison. So here's just a, a, a few uh, examples. The surveys that are most often used to monitor the Millennium Development Goals that are internationally comparable, these are supplemented by nationally comparable data set, national data sets, are the Demographic and Health Surveys, or DHS, the Multiple Indicator Cluster Surveys, or MIX, the Living Standards Measurement Surveys, LSMS, and the Core Welfare Indicators Questionnaire, or QUIC. And if we look at 1984, there was very, very little in the way of internationally comparable data, though there were precursors to some of these existing. Um, but the number of countries with at least one point of data by 2012 was 127. And the countries that had more than three points of data uh, from one of these surveys was reaching 80. Um, so in a sense, this coverage has increased, and it's increased relatively quickly. And I think that's important to note because it really is the availability of data which enables much of the work which we are now doing on multidimensional poverty measurement. It simply could not have been done <coughs> previously, particularly in this slide in terms of internationally comparable data. Of course, every country has their own particular history, and some countries have a long history, such as India, of household survey data, whereas others have more recent um, initiatives. And I would simply mention that in addition to the data availability, there um, has been an increase, therefore, in different methodologies of constructing um, multidimensional or composite indices. And these indices are a very, very different kinds, very different methodologies we'll be going into in a sense, how we could name and understand the differences um, later today when we speak about properties, and also tomorrow when we review different methodologies of constructing multidimensional indices. But for now, the point to note is that because of these uh, different possibilities, there really has been a, a, a strong increase in the number of indices available, in a sense, beginning with the Human Development Index in 1990, but now continuing to many other indices. There was a study published in 2006, Sam Beebe, which found that many of the new multidimensional indices of poverty and of well-being, more than half of them had been generated since the year 2000. And I would love to see that updated now in 2014. Um, perhaps another technical motivation has simply been methodological, because there have been some new methodologies developed, in a sense, beginning in 2003 in the axiomatic tradition with the work by Tony Atkinson and by François Bourguignon and Satya Chakravarti. Um, there has been a, a, a lot of new methodologies developed that have appealing axiomatic properties. And so this perhaps um, also motivates uh, new applied work when it relies on these kinds of methodologies. For example, there are over 50 published articles right now on the AF methodology. And applications go beyond po poverty and also include energy and resilience, um, time use. Um, so one of these that uh, might be of interest is Bhutan's Gross National Happiness Index, which has nine dimensions and 33 indicators. Um, was first published in 2008 with pilot data and then updated in 2010 and 2012. 
So that's a, a very, very brief recognition, nothing more than a recognition, that the world in which we are now working statistically and in terms of quantitative work is quite a different world than um, the previous generation of people who went to graduate school or who were trained. But now let's come to the really central question, which is why empirically, let, let's pretend that we agree that poverty is multidimensional um, in the experience of poor people, and let's acknowledge that our data sources are multiple and that our technology is strong. But still, there, we need to be convinced of the need to actually measure poverty in a multidimensional way. Um, and to do so, we need to explore the data, open the data and say, can we find a single proxy that reflects multidimensional poverty, the level of poverty at a particular time, and also the trend in poverty over time. And if we can find such an indicator, then we can leave, we can spend two weeks on holiday, and we don't have to learn all these multidimensional measurement techniques. So let's look and see if we can do that. <clears throat> so the first question is whether income or monetary poverty, it could be income or consumption expenditure poverty, can proxy other deprivations taken one by one, singly, okay? So here are a few examples of perhaps the surprising factor that the proxy is not as strong as at least I would have thought it would have been. For example, Katzman in 1989 found that 13% of households in Uruguay, Montevideo, the capital city, were income poor, but they did not have unsatisfied basic needs by that measure of unsatisfied basic needs, which is a counting-based measure um, uh, that we'll discuss more t tomorrow. But 7.5% of the population experienced unsatisfied basic needs but were not income poor. So this was an early recognition, perhaps, of the disjoint disjuncture between two different methodologies. Caterina Ruggieri Lederki, who did her DPhil here um, in this department, um, published, uh, published in 1997 an article using Chilean data where she also, she used Chilean and Peruvian data in her work and found also significant mismatches between single non-income indicators and income indicator using the CASEN. <coughs> in 2003, Catarina Ruggeri Lederki, together with Ruhi Set and Francis Stewart, published an article, which later became a book, that asked whether different definitions of poverty converged. They looked at four different definitions of poverty, not only capability poverty, which was measured by different single indicators of functionings, such as nutrition and education. They also looked at social exclusion and at participatory approaches. In this example, um, using a study by Suzanne and Franco for that <coughs> article and later book, they, de they document a mismatch. So let's see what this is. This is the percentage of people who are deprived in one of these functionings or capabilities, that is education or nutrition, who are not deprived in monetary poverty. <coughs> so in India, 43% of children were not attending school 
but did not live in families that were monetary poor. In Peru, 32% of children who were not attending school did not live in income-poor households. And 60% of adults who were illiterate did not live in income-poor families in India, and 37% in Peru. Moving to nutrition, 53% um, of kids, children, who were malnourished did not live in income-poor households in India. Now, looking among the income-poor, they also found significant numbers of people who were not deprived in the different capabilities. So to take that same example, 53% of the people who were income poor, of the children who lived in income poor families, were not malnourished. Okay, so you, you get what the numerators and denominators are. So what this is documenting is quite a significant um, mismatch between these um, different kinds of deprivation. And so naturally, that generated significant interest. And again, because we now have the microdata uh, available, um, then, and, and to do this, you need the microdata for income or consumption in the same survey as you have the data for these other indicators so that you can match uh, the households. So that has generated quite a bit of interest. Let's move to Europe, where this has been on the agenda and under discussion for uh, quite some time. Um, this is a paper in 2004 from Whelan, Late, and Maitre. And they used um, ECHP data, so panel data, from these European countries, nine European countries. And they defined people who are persistently income poor using the panel data across multiple periods, and persistently deprived in a set of material deprivations like not having a washing machine, not having a vacation, not being able to eat meat or fish or the vegetarian equivalent twice a week, um, having a roof that leaks. Um, and they looked at people who are persistently materially deprived. These are countries with high market penetration, and you would think that the income poor people would be materially deprived and vice versa. But what they found was that roughly 20% of people were persistently income poor, and roughly 20% of people were persistently deprived. But that only half of them, 9.7%, were deprived in both income and material goods in a persistent way. So this is now not just looking at a snapshot of one period, but it's looking uh, with dynamic, with, with um, uh, per at persistent deprivations across multiple periods and finding across these nine countries uh, a significant mismatch. So only half were poor in both. And although that varied across countries, um, it was not, this was, n these numbers were not the same. These numbers were not zero in any of the countries. So there was never a perfect match among the persistently income poor and the persistently deprived. Indeed, some countries like Denmark had a significantly larger mismatch between studies. Again, these kinds of findings create quite a bit of interest and discussion. And um, in Europe, there has been a move to a EU 2020 multidimensional poverty measure, 
um, which includes uh, the at-risk of poverty, a relative measure of income poverty, a material deprivation index, and also a joblessness or low work, work intensity indicator. So this is now the EU 2020 measure, and it's a multidimensional measure. And it includes people who are at the risk of income poverty, people who are materially deprived, and people who are jobless. Um, the indicator has been running for a number of years, and it is now under discussion um, and may be revised. But what you see from these Venn diagrams is that um, the match, the people who are deprived in all three of these forms of deprivation are quite a small proportion of those who are deprived in at least one of them. And so the EU 2020 measure actually takes a union approach and looks at people deprived in any of them. Um, this book by Tony Atkinson, Eric Marlier, and others um, is one of the, the, the many documentations of the EU 2020 measure when it was first uh, set out. So this again is suggesting that income is not a perfect proxy for material deprivation or joblessness. And as we saw, that was the case even when we looked across time. So we do have a problem in our hands and that we can't necessarily use income, therefore, um, to proxy other deprivations when we think of them only one by one. Of course, we will speak a lot more about unidimensional poverty um, uh, using monetary measures this afternoon, but there, are, there may be some other considerations um, that have to do with the data um, on which the unidimensional measures of monetary poverty are based um, that I believe we will cover in the afternoon. Um, but one thing which it is important to draw your attention to a little bit, for those of you who don't work on household surveys, is to recognize that the, the time cost of implementing a good uh, consumption and expenditure survey is quite significant. And so the time required to get the income or the consumption data, uh, particularly the consumption data, may be uh, quite high. Um, so now we're looking at income poverty trends. So the question is, we were looking at levels, and we were finding that the level and the identification of who was poor at a given time or who was deprived across several periods were not perfect mis matches. But what if the following occurred? What if income maybe didn't proxy the others, but the trend, a reduction in income poverty, walked in lockstep with reductions in other dimensions? then we could follow, we could use monetary measures to look at the trend of poverty reduction and to predict the trends in other variables. So let's explore that possibility empirically. Um, my title to this slide, I think, did not come. <laughs> so this was explored actually in a paper which first came out as a working paper in 2008 and later was published in a book, Equity and Growth in a Globalizing World. Um, and it's a paper by Francois Bourguignon, uh, former chief economist of the World Bank, and the other listed authors. Um, and they were, in 2008, sort of looking at mid the Millennium Development Goals, or MDGs, um, at midpoint. 
And they reviewed, among other things, they reviewed the trends in the different Millennium Development Goals one by one, using data, as much data as they could obtain from 1990, the starting point, through 2006. And then they looked at the trends in a dollar a day poverty, which was the MDG goal, um, and the trends in these other MDGs. And they didn't find um, a perfect match. So if this, these graphs are all with the um, change, the absolute trend in income poverty reduction on the vertical axis, and different Millennium Development Goals on the horizontal axis, for example, undernourishment, underweight, uh, gender parity in secondary education enrollment, and primary education completion. And if the trend of income poverty and the trends of these other variables were highly correlated, then you would have had a nice um, shape like this. But instead, you don't see much. It's a scatter plot. The only significant relationship was here with underweight, but since neither undernourishment nor stunting was significant, um, they discussed it but thought perhaps it's not, uh, it, it was difficult to understand. So here are some others, also the growth in a dollar a day measure and under five mortality, um, and then some of the other goals, the social goals mapped against each other. So they were not finding that the trends in any one variable could be predicted either by income poverty trends or indeed by trends in other MDGs. So if you look at the change in primary education completion and gender parity and secondary enrollment, you also don't see a clear relationship. We have updated this in the chapter circulated to you. Um, using data available from 1990 to 2012. This was work done with Mahika Chatterjee as well as the book authors. In these graphics, the bubbles represent the size of the population in the year 2000. The vertical axis remains the absolute change, but now it's the change in the $1.25 a day poverty headcount ratio. And different um, indicators are shown. So. Panel two is the primary completion rate. Um, panel three is, again, gender parity in education. And panel five is changes in under five mortality rate. And again, you are not seeing a very clear relationship between the change in $1.25 a day and the change in these other indicators. So um, even when we update the data, in a sense, to take into account a longer time period and hope that maybe then we would see a, a clearer structure we are not seeing that we could really sensibly use the change in $1.25 a day measures to predict the changes in the other MDG indicators. So, so far, we have primarily looked at changes in monetary poverty measures and found that they don't necessarily um, plot or track the level or trend in non-monetary indicators. But it could be that some non-monetary indicator is a good proxy for the rest. It could be that girls' education, which everyone says is so central and so interconnected with everything else, is a good proxy in level or trend for other deprivations. It could be that malnutrition might be. So another question is, if we leave monetary measures behind, 
could we look at um, these other indicators and, and look at associations between them? So could we use one non-income indicator, a bellwether indicator of multidimensional poverty, as Lawrence Haddad uh, called it, to proxy uh, other core social deprivations? Maybe not all of them, but maybe a number of them. So in a sense, what we are doing now is a very, very simple crosstab. Um, and let's just look at an example um, using the NFHS3 data set, National Family Health Survey, which is the demographic and health survey in India, 2005-06. And we are looking at the raw headcount, so the deprivations, uncensored deprivations, of people who live in a household where a child has died. And it's 25.7% of the population. And then we find that 18.2% of people live in a household where no one has five years of schooling. We've been trained, at least, um, we've read the literature that having schooling is important um, for child health. And so we might think that these households would mainly be the same households. So we do the very simple cross-tab, but we find that 5.8% of households experience both deprivations. That is, nobody in the household has five years of schooling and they've experienced the sadness of a child death. So that's, in a sense, less than one-third of, of households experience both deprivations at the same time. <coughs> and so we could say that neither one of these deprivations is a good proxy for another. Are you with me? Okay. And we can keep doing this. Um, I won't do it for the rest of the morning, but I'll do it one or two more times. So we could then say, what about where a child is not attending school? And that's 21.1% of the households. Is that linked to child mortality? And again, we find um, that 8.1% of households experience both deprivations, but um, not more than that. So what we have done is we have gone through quite systematically, um, and we will be learning the, the procedures for doing this. We've gone through it using a redundancy indicator or a measure of overlap that we'll go through uh, later this week. Um, and we don't find a regular systematic relationship which holds across all different countries um, with different levels of poverty between, for example, the, indicator, the 10 indicators of the multidimensional poverty index for global uh, use. Now, of course, there might be much better proxies nationally. And so this is, we're, we're, we're posing the question because each data set has to re-verify what is and is not accurate um, in that particular context. But this is definitely a question to consider. Um, also, we now have quite a bit of data from the um, analysis of the Millennium Development Goals over time. And these are collected both in the World Development Indicators published by the World Bank and in the Global Monitoring Reports. Um, and these results um, map the uh, Global Monitoring Report as of 2013. The black bands show the number of countries, which is not a, a, a favorite way of categorizing countries because countries have very different populations. Um, but anyway, this is the number of countries out of 144 in which have met the target of having extreme 
poverty, um, for example, or of, of each of the other indicators, improved water, primary school completion, undernourishment, sanitation, and infant mortality. So the black are the number of countries that have met the target. The dark gray, they've made sufficient progress to meet it by 2015. The lighter gray, insufficient progress. Um, and then moderately or seriously are off target. And the white bands show those who have insufficient data to evaluate progress. But what you can see at a glance is that the number of countries who have met, or met the income poverty target is not the same as those who have met the target to reduce infant mortality or child mortality, um, and so on with the other indicators. And so the trends also vary uh, across country, or uh, by, by indicator. I'm going to put in a slide now just to introduce some of the final consideration um, when we move to a multidimensional measure and, and bring to your attention something that we will go into quite a bit uh, more systematically later. Um, but we, so far we have been looking at the non-income deprivations one by one. And we've been looking for one proxy um, from one indicator to a proxy of another. Um, but of course, there is also uh, a, an advantage in looking at how the indicators overlap their joint distribution. Um, and this is a slide from a paper published in Social Indicators Research by Mariana Santos of OFI and Batastón and others. Um, and they have these different indicators, six indicators, including income. And they have data from 1995 and 2006. And you can see very clearly the reductions occurred in all six of the indicators. So this is simply the headcount ratio of deprivations in each of the indicators at the two periods of time. And this panel shows the number of indicators that people are deprived in at the same time. Um, in 1995, this many people were deprived in six indicators at the same time, five, four, three, two, and one. And in 2006, we can then also count the number of those six deprivations equally weighted that people, poor people experienced. And the happy news is that those who only experienced one deprivation increased, and those who experienced other deprivations decreased. Um, and this could be quite interesting, um, both to look across deprivations and so combine indicators, and to combine it in a way that reflects the joint distribution of deprivations. So I'll come back to that when we think, when we look at multidimensional poverty and tracking um, multidimensional poverty in a moment. But let's see where we've gotten so far. We've looked at different deprivation levels of income and other deprivations, and we've seen their difference. We've looked at trends with income poverty and other deprivations across time. And then we've sought one bellwether indicator, girls' education or malnutrition, that in a sense captures um, the other social deprivations or non-monetary deprivations, and we haven't yet encountered it. But there's still one very interesting possibility. And the possibility could be that economic growth or another policy outcome could itself be a sufficient predictor of the trends in the multidimensional poverty measures, in the different dimensions of poverty, that in a sense, if there was success in economic growth and it predicted 
trends in these non-income deprivations, then we would have another metric to focus on. So let's look a little bit at that. This claim, of course, has often been made. For example, in 2008, um, the World Bank hosted a growth commission that Nobel laureate Michael Spence chaired. And that growth commission, um, in its opening pages, um, had this statement. It recognized that growth is not an end in itself, but it claimed that growth makes it possible to achieve other important objectives of individuals and societies, which I think is a claim that all of us probably would accept. Um, it also claimed that growth can spare people en masse from poverty and drudgery, and it claimed that nothing else ever has. So that's quite a strong claim. Now, if it's true, then in a sense, we would see that countries that have experienced high growth would have high reduction in multidimensional poverty, and those with low growth would not. Um, the Growth Commission, and it's, it's really an interesting study, and I do commend it to you, it basically focused on a number of countries that had had strong economic growth of 7% or higher for a sustained period of at least 25 years. However, even if you look at some of the non-monetary indicators of those countries, such as Indonesia, Botswana, and Oman listed here, you do find some quite high um, anecdotal levels of non-monetary deprivations um, remaining after the growth. But that's, again, that's anecdotal and that's just exploring things. However, there are some other um, studies which have tried to look uh, a bit more closer at the issues, and one of them, again, is the paper that I cited earlier by François Bourguignon and co colleagues. This is a long quote. Um, but what they found, again, using that data set in which they had the trends of the MDGs from 1990 to 2006 in their case, um, they're the trend of growth and those variables. And they could not find, they, they said the correlation between growth in GDP per capita and improvements in non-income MDGs is practically zero they found that there was a relationship, as we would expect, between income growth or GDP, growth per, uh, GDP per capita growth and unidimensional poverty, monetary poverty, the dollar a day measure. Um, and then they say because it would be hard to believe that income on, on non in information on non-income MDGs is so badly affected by measurement error that it is pure noise, this lack of relationship, they suggested, reflects some relative independence among policy instruments governing progress in various MDGs. And their conclusion is that it's not, economic growth is not sufficient per se to generate progress in non-income MDGs. Sectoral policies or other factors or circumstances also matter. Um, so this raised a question. It's not saying that economic growth is not important, but it is saying that it's not sufficient um, or suggesting it. Um, there's quite a nice analysis, and I do hope that you will read it if you haven't already. Uh, last year, Amartya Sen and Jean Drez re released their book, An Uncertain Glory, India and Its in Contradictions. And one of the chapters um, looks at India's spectacular economic growth 
um, and also its trends in social indicators. It compares India to other countries in South Asia, to China, and then to some other regions. So for simplicity in our, this table, we update and but have a table very similar to theirs using data from 1990 and from 2010 or 2011. Now, India has grown since the 1980s, um, and its growth rate uh, has been quite strong. Um, and so, for example, between 1990 and 2011, India's income per capita more than doubled um, from $1,193 per capita to $3,203. Um, however, we compare it here to Bangladesh and Nepal. Both of them had and continue to have lower incomes. So Bangladesh in 1990 had per capita income of $741 and Nepal $716. And Bangladesh grew slightly stronger, so now has a per capita income of $1,569 versus $1,106. So, but even in the case of Bangladesh, its income is half the income of India's. But what happened to the trends in its social indicators over the same period. So under five mortality rate, Bangladesh started off having the highest at 139 um, deaths per thousand of under five, and India started by having the lowest with 114. However, in 2011, Bangladesh has the lowest at 46, Nepal the second lowest at 48, and India the highest at 61. So during those 21 years, where India has more than doubled its income, um, its reduction of under five mortality rate has been slower than Nepal and Bangladesh. Indeed, it has fallen behind, although it has more than double the income. And there are other examples. So maternal mortality rate was also highest in Bangladesh, and, but it's now no lowest in Nepal, which was the second highest. Um, and India has the middle uh, figure. Of course, maternal mortality ratios are uh, of, ha have some significant measurement error in them. But let's look at infant immunization where the data are quite good or at female literacy. So if we look, for example, at DPT, diphtheria, polio, and tetanus immunizations of children, in 1990, Nepal had the lowest at 44%. Um, followed by India at 55, 59, and Bangladesh at 64. But now again, Bangladesh is leading at 96, followed by Nepal at 92, and India is much behind at 72%. Or female literacy. So India again was leading in 1990 with 49% of women aged 15 to 24 being literate. But it now has been surpassed by both of the other countries. Um, uh, who now have 78% of women being literate, aged 15 to 24. So what this now very detailed study of three countries and even more details are available in the Dres and Sen volume with many other social indicators and comparisons with other countries. But what it is showing is that during the same period of quite strong economic growth, other countries have had stronger improvements in social indicators. So it's suggesting that economic growth, at least in these cases, has not predicted the
the changes in other indicators. So one final stop in our so, so far fruitless search for a, a, a single indicator that we could, in a sense, take and use to reflect the level or trend of multidimensional poverty. So our question now is, is a slightly different question. We saw earlier in the first section of empirical work that income poverty did not accurately predict malnutrition or children out of school or adult illiteracy. But what if we put these social deprivations together? And for the sake of simplicity during this summer school, we're going to put them together into uh, a multidimensional poverty index using a counting-based approach, so an MPI, the, maybe the global MPI and in some cases national MPIs. But let's put the social indicators together and see whether income poverty predicts the combined measure because it could be that it doesn't predict each of them taken one by one, but when they are put together in an index, there is a good association between them. Okay? Are you with me? So now we are looking at a measure that reflects the joint distribution of deprivations um, that I introduced earlier. So first of all, let's go back to the year 2000 in South Africa. Um, a paper published by Stefan Klassen uh, on poverty and deprivation in South Africa created the deprivation index um, and also looked at income poverty. So what he found was when there were 44% um, of people who were identified as poor or deprived, um, there was a mismatch of 8.7%. Um, so let me clarify what this is. You're taking income poverty, and then you're varying your poverty line to fix 44.2% of people as deprived, as poor, sorry. And then you're creating a deprivation index, and you're also fixing a cutoff to identify 44.2% of people as deprived. And then you're looking at the mismatch. This is very similar to the wheeling Leighton Matra, but now we're looking at income poverty, and instead of material deprivation, a deprivation index. And you see that the match is, in a sense, um, there. But then he also identified the 20% of people that were poorest or most deprived um, and found that the mismatch was greater for that uh, group. So this is an early study which was trying to look at a multidimensional deprivation index, comparing it with income poverty and seeing that it wasn't as high as half, um, uh, but Sorry, it, it was more than half of people were income not deprived but income poor or deprived but not income poor um, when about 20% of households were either income poor or deprived. So now let's look at an, um, a set of studies, each of which use AF methodologies but you have different indicators in the multidimensional poverty index that they use depending on the surveys that exist. So in each of these studies, some of them had income data, some of them had consumption data, but a um, monetary measure was created, and I've lost the headings I see on my graphics, so I'll have to say what they are. Um, and 
in each case, a multidimensional poverty index was created. That in some cases, such as South Africa, India, and Nepal, was the global MPI, and in other cases, was something else that could be constructed from the data set. What the authors did in all cases was they matched, again, the headcount, the percentage of people who were deprived in income and in the MPI. They matched them as closely as they could. So, for example, in Venezuela, about 17%, 16.8% of people would be income poor, and 16.8% of people were multidimensionally poor. This is a paper by Jose Manuel Roche and Cesar Gallo. When they found that the headcounts of both were 16.8%, what percentage of people were deprived in both income and multidimensional poverty? It was 3.4%. So the match is actually that one-fifth of these people were deprived in both income and multidimensional poverty. They also went to focus on the extreme poor. So in this column, you have when they focused on a, a smaller subset of people who were poor. In this case, 8%, 8.4% of the population were income poor, 8.4% were multidimensionally poor, and 2% were poor by both measures. This was also done again by Stefan Klassen using the NIDS data set for South Africa. Um, he found when he matched the headcounts at 11%, 3% of people were poor. Um, and so you're getting the idea. But what we are finding is that when we, that in no cases is this 100% match in the sense that everybody who is income poor is multidimensionally poor. But also in no cases is it above 50%. The highest match was in Nepal. We used the NLSS data set. This is work done by Ramhari. And um, when 25% of the population were poor, um, half of the income poor were also multidimensionally poor. And that increased when you had a population rate um, of 42%. Um, so this is suggesting that, again, income poverty is linked to multidimensional poverty. The, the strength of association varies quite considerably. It would also vary within countries if we were to decompose subnationally. Um, but that, in a sense, they are not walking in lockstep. We're not having 80 to 100% matches between the two indicators. Again, this is just for one <coughs> period of time, um, the same period of time. And so it would be interesting, again, to do this in a dynamic way. And it would be interesting um, to look subnationally at, at different regions. There's the also the question of whether a multidimensional poverty index would trend alongside an income measure. Um, so this is work done with Anavaj and Jose Manuel Roche um, using the global MPI and comparing it for those countries for which we are able to obtain income poverty trend data for the sim a similar period. Um, and the dark bars show the change, absolute change, in the headcount ratio of multidimensional poverty. And the yellow bars show the absolute change in the headcount ratio of $1.25 a day poverty. And in Nepal, you see that both of them had a very similar change at 4%. But you don't actually see that in many other countries. A little bit in Pakistan was quite close in both. Um, but otherwise, it, the trends tend to be different. So in the case of Rwanda, Ghana, Bolivia, 
and Bangladesh, for example, the reductions of multidimensional poverty, MPI, were faster than the reductions in $1.25 a day poverty. But in Cambodia, in Uganda, in Mozambique, in Indonesia, Malawi, Ethiopia, and Niger, the reduction of $1.25 a day poverty was faster than the reduction of MPI. So we're not seeing something that we could confidently use the trend in monetary poverty to predict the trend in multidimensional poverty. And Schumann um, also did this using the per capita state GDP for India and the India MPI um, and comparing it with income poverty um, growth, state level growth um, and the AF MPIs. And so this is the growth in per capita state GDP and the reduction in MPI. Um, for the different states. And if there was, again, a, a clear relationship, um, then that would be quite interesting, but we're not seeing for MPI and state-level growth data a clear relationship. Others of OFER have work in progress doing this with growth for uh, different countries. So we've spent nearly an hour now, and we've been looking very hard to see whether we actually need to make a multidimensional poverty measure, or whether we are able to find some other way of capturing multidimensional deprivations, multiple deprivations, using a single measure, whether it be income or some non-income bellwether indicator, or whether we could capture those trends using either an, the trends in another income, another indicator, like income, or the trends such as economic growth in social statewide uh, or nationwide uh, variables. Of course, this could be extended. There might yet be another indicator. So maybe you will find a fantastic proxy, or maybe there's another macro level indicator, which is a very good predictor. But from this work, we have not been able to find an adequate proxy for the level and trend of multidimensional poverty. And when we have then in the, in the last few slides, implemented a multidimensional poverty measure, we do see some interesting differences that could be interesting to explore or that at least seem to add further information. So really it does arise, the, the demand to create multidimensional measures does not only arise from the recognition that poverty is multidimensional, it also arises from a quantitative analysis that shows that it is not necessarily possible to reflect multidimensional poverty using unidimensional variables, at least the ones that we have tried to look at. So briefly now, um, the, the national and international demand. Um, as many of you know, there has been some media coverage um, of the multidimensional poverty measure. Um, in different years, it's been different uh, kinds of coverage, um, but it certainly at least uh, created some interest because perhaps it uh, was comparable between countries and perhaps um, it was easier to compare than other indicators because there is um, a headcount ratio and there is um, some ability to go within countries and look subnationally. There is also um, a little bit of interest in not just developing international measures, but as you heard this morning, 
um, most of the energy is really on developing national measures of multidimensional poverty, where the variables, the weights, and the cutoffs are tailored to national conditions. And because of that interest, um, last year, uh, here in Oxford actually, we launched um, the Global Multidimensional Poverty Peer Network, um, actually launched in Maudlin College, that picture is taken in this college, uh, where ma many of you are staying. And at that point, 16 countries attended the meeting. Um, we had our second meeting um, in July, 7th and 8th, in Germany this year, in Berlin. And 30 countries uh, are now members of the network, plus 10 international institutions. And so there is a rapidly growing um, interest in constructing national multidimensional poverty measures. And we'll go into the reasons for that interest later. Um, but it seems to do with the ability that multidimensional measures give policymakers, first of all, to track changes and outcomes from sectoral policies in a relatively uh, short space of time without significant lags, and therefore their ability to, to manage um, the different interventions that pol and policies um, in, a, in a way that is joined up. Um, and uh, reflects the fact that many of these aspects of poverty are interconnected um, and so must be addressed in a synthetic way. Um, and the final slide is just to mention that there are also political space um, to have new measures uh, and particularly political space to have new measures that look by region or by ethnic group that try to seek out who are the poorest, who are the poorest groups, who are the poorest regions, um, and how have these changed over time. Um, there's also an interest in having one headline figure that you can announce to the press, but that then you can break down immediately by dimension to look at its composition and to, in a sense, see which policies were successful in driving change. And we'll see tomorrow, for example, the, exam the case of Mexico, where when they identified an indicator, in that case food security, as not um, re having reduced in the period of 2008 to 2010, it then led to a policy response, the crusade against hunger, which is, is very active and which some of you will know a great deal about. There is also... Um, an incentive in a multidimensional poverty measure to reduce the number of people who are poor. But there is an added in incentive, like the poverty gap measure in income space, to reduce the intensity of people who remain poor. So the intensity of deprivations or the average percentage of deprivations that poor people continue to experience goes down. Um, and so we can show inequality among the poor. We can show who experienced the most deprivations at the same time. And we can also provide incentives to reduce the conditions of the poorest. Um, and there's also, as the slide from Batistan et al. showed, there's some value added to um, counting-based multidimensional poverty measures because they're able to look at the joint distribution of deprivations, in a sense the number or the weighted sum of deprivations people experience, 
And if you read Wolfe and de Chalet's book on disadvantage, you find a philosophical justification for looking at what they call clustered deprivations. Because in their study, when poor people speak about poverty, they not only speak about the lack of health or education or um, income that they have, but they also speak about the difficulty of experiencing many deprivations at the same time. Um, and finally, um, what we are doing in this class is, in a sense, um, taking advantage of the flexibility of um, the AF methodology to be used with different indicators and different cutoffs and different weights. And you will choose your own when you make your measures that you'll present next Friday. And you'll also do robustness tests. So what I've tried to do in this first class is just lay out a little bit of the motivation for measuring poverty measures, starting by acknowledging that the world has changed in terms of data and technology. And so we are using um, that space which has been made available but we're now using it to improve poverty measures. Um, and then we've explored that data, which are now available to us, um, to s quite systematically, um, to look for um, other ways of reflecting the level and trend of multidimensional poverty. And we found that there remains a space, a gap in the market, as it were, for multidimensional poverty measure. Um, um, and then we've acknowledged that there is some demand which is, which is driving that. So that's the material here. It's a very much an introductory session. Um, and so now we have a half an hour for discussion. My question was related to the Human Development Index because I definitely see the need to have a multidimensional measure to understand how countries are progressing in development. But then I was wondering what are the advantages of this measure that we are discussing here with the HDI? So that's a good point, and I didn't present anything about the, the level and trends of HDI. Um, Human Development Index is a well-being index, and if James Foster were here, he would very clearly delineate, in a sense, you might want to think of three main kinds of indices that you would use in society. One is to measure well-being, and that could be your GDP per capita, it could be a human development index, it could be a gross national happiness index, it could be a Makasa da Sharia index. There would be many different kinds of well-being indices. And these are meant to reflect the achievements of all members of society. And then you would have an inequality index, which in a sense reflects the distribution, the range of a, those achievement levels across all members of society. And then you might want to have a poverty index, which in a sense only reflects the achievements of people who fall, if it's an absolute poverty line, people who fall below that poverty line, um, or but below a relative poverty line. But in, a, in either case, you are looking at the base of the population. And so a multidimensional poverty measure is different from the HDI in a number of ways, but the primary one is that the HDI is a measure of achievement so it covers everyone in society, and a poverty measure is only going to cover the poor. The HDI also is a composite indicator, and so it adds up the average GDP per capita, the average life expectancy, and the average sum of you know, uh, expected years of schooling and average years of schooling. Um, and so it doesn't reflect the joint distribution of each person. So it is a column-first 
um, measure, which uses what we are going to call aggregate or marginal measures, that is the sum across all people in a society, the average, um, uh, to construct it, it. And so it also doesn't reflect the joint distribution. So those are the two main ways that HDI differs from the MPI uh, methodology. Um, so it adds a value, and we could talk about levels and trends, but it also wouldn't walk in lockstep with the level or trend of MPI. Okay, I have a slightly more political question, which is, once you have your MPI measure, who will actually deal with the deprivations you get from the MPI measure? So there are two aspects to this question, right? There's the framing one, which is that you're saying it's multidimensional poverty, which makes you think of it falling under the Department of Economics, but you could also call it multidimensional health, because it's about well-being, or you call it multidimensional education, and it will fall under the other departments. The other section, the other part of it is that if you then find in a country that there's a lot of multidimensional deprivation in terms of both income, in terms of illiteracy, in terms of health, then you could say, okay, the health ministry is going to deal with malaria, whatever, and the finance ministry is going to deal with income generating schemes, and the education ministry is going to deal with illiteracy. So then what have you then added by having a multidimensional measure, as opposed to just three separate indicators? Very good question. So uh, a three-part response. First of all, um, it, coming out of empirical work. So in 2010, the UNDP released a study of 50 country studies um, on that had achieved success in reducing the MDGs. And they were trying to, to figure it out. And they found that those who had addressed them together had made most progress. And what that means to address them together is that instead of education only looking at education and health only looking at health, it meant that there had been some discussions among them. Um, whether that is at the lowest level of, of government, whether that is, you know, that can happen at different way, different levels, how it is integrated, but that would be part of the response. The second is is an example. So you ask, uh, what is it called, and who who is responsible for it? Well, creating a measure doesn't create responsibility, and in a sense, that's the trade-off between us, you and me, who make measures, and our hope that somebody will take them seriously. Um, but what happens when people take them seriously? So um, the example which will be shared uh, in the case of Colombia um, and Mexico has done something similar is that in both countries there has been a committee set up at the ministerial level having, including the ministries of the different sectors that are involved <coughs> in reducing multidimensional poverty. And in a sense, the national MPI in both cases, which is different in construction from the global MPI, has been used to create a conversation about which indices are going well and which indices are going poorly. But many times, it's actually multiple ministries which have to co coordinate in order to reduce some outcome measure. Um, and so it, it may be it may be the case that only education is involved in education, but it also may be the case that transport has to come in or that education or that health has to, has to be involved. And so uh, there, there is, is that. Um, and the third is that I think part of the work that we can do as technical people to try to get that kind of a policy response is to focus not only on the content, which has to be rigorous and has to be sine qua non, you know, well done 
in terms of the robustness, to, to also focus on communicating the results so that those who are in a position to act on them can understand them. And many times, folks who are in academia um, don't go the extra mile of trying to communicate the results accurately to people who are able to use them. And so hopefully that's why we do have some sessions on communication in, in the next two weeks, is to try to integrate that into our practice. <coughs> yep. Gisela, there's several people, so yeah, Chris and then him. Could you say your names today, at least when you start? Uh, Luke Schlögl. Thanks Luke. for the interesting presentation. I had one question. Have you explored the relationship between um, self-labeled poverty and the MPI? So what people say in household surveys uh, label themselves or experience poverty, some kind of that measure. And just one thought about the uh, relationship between economic growth and poverty reduction. I think unless you uh, control for the level of GDP, um, it's kind of hard to make that um, correlation because it might be much easier for a low-income country to pick low-hanging fruit, so to speak, and reduce poverty than for a middle-income country or uh, upper-middle-income country. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much. So, um, on the <coughs> self-labeling, the only... I think they would be very interesting, and I think subjective poverty is included in many surveys, and in a, so in a sense it's, it's low-hanging fruit in, uh, of work that could be done. Um, Colombia used, they had in their survey, um, the quality of life uh, survey, um, a question on subjective poverty, are you poor? And they used it in setting their poverty cutoff. So what they did was they, um, their national poverty measure has 15 indicators, and they looked at people who subjectively reported themselves to be non-poor. And they looked at the average number of deprivations they experienced, and it was one-third. And then they looked at the people who did not subjectively consider themselves to be poor. And they looked at the average number of deprivations they experienced, and it was one-fifth. So they set their poverty cutoff closer to one-third. Um, it was actually a little bit more than a third, and they set their poverty cutoff at a third. Um, and so they used it, in a sense, as a, a triangulation um, about where to set the poverty cutoff. Um, but that's the only study that I know of, and that's on our website, the Angulo et al. paper. Um, in terms of level and, and uh, growth, obviously, point taken, uh, we, all, we have absolute and relative um, trends, and we have looked at all of them, but we haven't written it up. And so there, there's a lot more to be written up. Um, but yeah, point taken. <laughs> Thank you very much uh, for the presentation. I think this present, uh, presentation gave us an overview of uh, the rationale behind MPI. Um, they can't hear you in the back. I'm so sorry. Could you speak a little louder? Okay. Uh, it gave us uh, an overview of MPI, and the rationale, and actually the current thinkings and practice. Uh, my first qu question is about the number of countries that are really applying national MPIs. Mm -hmm. Uh, really, looking at all the advantages that, that have been shown, it seems that really it's more relevant, it's more responsive to policy and, and programming. Uh, so really, what is the spread of really user uh, MPIs, national MPIs? Hmm? Because really I see a lot of uh, 
problems with the global MPIs, mm -hmm. simply because of, I'm sure, the porosity of data. You don't have data, up to, the, up to the latest data about most of these countries. But how many countries are really developing surveys in line with really generating their national MPIs? The other thing is, uh, from it's, it's still the unidimensional index is useful, Absolutely. particularly in constructing the MPIs. Mm -hmm. If that's it, then really also their relationship needs to be really looked at. Uh, the issue of economic development and poverty reduction, I, said, I think you sum it up very well. Uh, that, uh, the, com the report highlighted that growth must be, eh? mm -hmm. but it's not a sufficient condition for poverty reduction. Uh, it's without growth, it's kill it all. Eh? Mm -hmm. uh, but growth must happen. Uh, growth is not a cure to all, but without growth, it's kill it all. That's the summary of that report. But then in between this, particularly for us coming from developing countries, uh, the link between economic growth and poverty reduction, the role of infrastructure and technology, I think is key in this. I don't know whether somebody had really done some work in this, uh, in the, within the perspective of the multidimensional index. Thank you. Thank you so much. So in terms of the national poverty measures, um, Mexico was the first to announce its national poverty measure in 2009. Mexico. Um, Bhutan had done its GNH index first in 2008 and then in 2010. Um, in 2010, Bhutan released its first national MPI, and in 2013, it published its second. In 2011, Colombia released its MPI, and then there was Philippines. Um, and then there's, as you've heard, the South African MPI. And there's a lot more in development. I think it was yesterday Costa Rica announced um, its intention to develop an MPI. Um, and altogether, I think OFI are working with over 40 countries um, that are, have expressed an interest in learning about and developing MPIs. That does not include Europe. Europe, of course, has the EU 2020. And they're revising the EU 2020 and 2015. Um, and so there, that, that's a different, I, I'm basically talking about developing countries in, in this summer school. So that's, but um, the network, the multidimensional poverty peer network that I mentioned collects um, and has online uh, PowerPoints from the countries that were present in Berlin that, you know, whether it's China in the Wuling Mountain region, uh, piloting an MPI, or whether it's um, the state of Minas Gerais in Brazil, which has used um, a measure for targeting and for um, uh, an integrated program delivery. Um, there are a lot of these case studies online, um, the PowerPoints and the, 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 the podcasts of the talks. Um, so I would commend those to anyone who's interested in, in seeing. I, I learn a lot uh, from, from how other people are implementing this work. Um, and on the other points, I would um, say that, no, please, somebody needs to do work on infrastructure, on technology, on different sectoral policies. That's really the agenda, which I I is very, very ripe for analysis. And there's some, but it's, it's not yet really collected together because the work is still so new. Thank you for your presentation. Uh, my Can you speak up? My question is on the uh, low overlapping between monetary and non-monetary measures of poverty. 
we observe uh, low uh, overlapping between um, relative income poverty and uh, European severe material deprivation uh, in Turkey. Uh, why, uh, what do you think uh, about the reason of this overlapping uh, between poverty measures? Uh, you know, uh, there are two kinds of poverty lines in order to identify the income poor. Uh, absolute poverty lines uh, do not uh, reflect accurately the income poor in middle income countries. And relative income poverty concept is actually an income inequality concept, you know. Uh, so uh, this low overlapping is due to the uh, the inefficiency of poverty, monetary measures of poverty. Uh, my question is this. Thank you. Thank you. So I should clarify that when I presented the ECHP results, it was a relative income measure. And when I presented the other country studies, it was an absolute income poverty measure or consumption poverty measure. Now. Um, what are the reasons for the mismatch? I'll answer a little bit more generally because I don't know Turkey. Um, one possible reason for mismatch are characteristics of the household. For example, in here in the UK, there was a study of the households with people with disabilities. And this is something Amartya Sen has written about also conceptually. But this was an empirical study looking at the income required for those households to be free of material deprivations and finding it to be significantly higher. Um, than the income required by other households. And so there could be characteristics, dependency ratios would be another, um, or household, uh, so there household characteristics which mean that the income required to evade material deprivation would be different than, um, than anticipated. Another possible reason are inaccuracies. In the case of the European data, it's usually income self-report data, and that is famously known for under-reporting. Um, but when you're using consumption and expenditure data, there's also the problem that often you're combining seven-day recall, 30-day recall, and 365-day recall. But particularly the seven-day recall, and to some extent 30-day recall, is subject to volatility. And yet you are using that number as being accurate of that household's consumption for the past year. And you know, if last week was my wedding, or if last week was my harvest, um, or if last week I bought all my seeds for the coming uh, harvest, then there will have been volatility that will mean that there would be an inaccuracy in the consumption data at the individual level. And we'll go into this because in designing a multidimensional measure, you need each variable to be relatively accurate at the individual level, not on average. Um, and so there, there may be issues there. For example, in Bhutan, they had 12.2% of the households were monetarily poor in the, using the 2012 data, and 12% were multidimensionally poor, and only 3.2% were poor in both. And for, to answer your question properly, you need qualitative work. So you need to go and knock on their door and say, who are you, <laughs> and why are you not monetarily poor, or why are you monetarily poor and not multi? So we have, as quantitative people, we have limits. So I think this is an area where we do need qualitative work um, and special studies to really uncover the differences. You were next, and then Salman, and then Udoi. Okay, hi, yeah. it's uh, Hanna Shumboroska from uh, University of Leeds. Um, thank you very much for your uh, presentation. And my question to you is, um, I was wondering if you could uh, elaborate or um, 
put an introduction to what I guess we will uh, explore in the next few days on how sensitive is uh, the measure to the uh, subjective judgments that are made by the researchers on the way, because I guess there is a, a series of the normative issues that uh, the researcher has to explore and to judge of in, in choosing the weights, uh, in constructing the index. So could you just um, mention uh, the sensitivity and maybe the potential comparability of the MPI across countries that devised this measure? Is it comparable between countries or uh, is it not hinging on a definition? Thank you. Yeah, thank you very much. I think it's <coughs> useful to distinguish two words, subjective and normative. So subjective tends to do with a psychological state. So I'm subjective means I'm, I'm happy today. So it could be my mood or it could be my subjective assessment that my life has gone well um, in the past few weeks or the past year. So that is subjective in a sense because it is, it's reflecting data, but it's reflecting data that's more either an internal individual value judgment or an internal feeling or mood. And there are many, if you get into that happiness, then there are many different ways of, of measuring subjective well-being. Normative is, in a sense, a value judgment, and that value judgment can be reasoned. That is, it can be based on other assessments of value, whether they come from participatory work or whether they come from a policy document or the, a constitutional mandate. Um, so the choice of parameters, which we're going to cover tomorrow, um, the weights, the cutoffs, the indicator selection that I mentioned, those are often normative judgments, but it doesn't mean they come from nowhere or that tomorrow if I was in a different mood, I would make it differently. So I think because you have to justify and you will have to justify your own normative assessments, it's useful to, to distinguish that vocabulary. Now that being said, the normative assessments are exogenous. They don't come from principal component analysis or from statistical technique. And so your question is very apt. How sensitive are they to a poverty line? How, how sensitive are they is the final measure to the poverty line selection, for example, which is um, the, the most common uh, issue in, in income poverty measurement. And so we will have cl a class on the robustness and sensitivity analysis. And to give you an example from the global MPI, we could think of different kinds of uh, choices. So there's a choice of indicators. What if we use stunting rather than undernourishment, right? So we, in, 2010 with Mariema Santos tested the rank correlations between the ranking of the 104 countries we did in 2010 for the two different indicators of malnutrition, keeping everything else the same. So we found in the case of stunting or in the case of flush toilet instead of adequate sanitation or piped water into the house instead of safe water. And you can see the results, but the cor rank correlations, Kendall Taube, were relatively high uh, for the different indicator definitions. Then we tested for different weights. Um, so keeping the same structure of nested weights, we changed the weight on each of three dimensions of the global MPI that uh, you'll go through tomorrow from one-third per dimension to one-quarter and one-half. So one dimension was a half and the other two were a quarter. And again, we recomputed with each dimension in turn receiving 50% weight and did the rank correlations across the countries. And 86% of pairwise comparisons, I remember, were the same. And the rank correlations are in the paper. 
And then the third thing to change is the poverty line or the poverty cutoff. And in the global MPI, to give an example, that's 33%. And so we changed it between 20% and 40%. And again, between 90 and 94 in different years, we do this most years to update it. We haven't yet done it for 2014. Um, 90 to 94% of the pairwise comparisons were the same. So those are the kinds of sensitivity tests that are done and the kinds of results that are found. What we don't yet have is we don't have standards to say if it's less than 92%, it's not robust. So that's an area for more work, for more academic work, in a sense, trying to think through these standards. But that's a, that's a foreshadow, a preview of what will come. And then in terms of comparability, the global MPI, which we refer to by that name, um, is designed to be as comparable as current data permit. Um, it doesn't mean it's perfectly comparable, but it's where it is not comparable, it's transparent what is different. But when I speak of the MPI for Mexico or Colombia national measures, they're not comparable. Again, we will stress this several times, I'm sure, during the course, but it's very much like income poverty, that you have the $1.25 a day poverty line. It's not perfectly comparable, but it's as comparable as you can get with existing surveys of income and consumption across countries. But what countries actually use are their national income poverty measures. These are not comparable, but they are what's used for policy. And there is an independent value of each measure. And so the answer is not which is better, but how do we do both? How do we make a global measure which is as good as possible, but no, it, will, it will be useful for some comparative studies, but at the same time, the more important work for national policy is to design national poverty measures that are multidimensional in our case. Thank you very much. My name is Salman. Uh, part of my question has already been answered because a question was raised, but uh, you focus more on showing the association and disassociation between monetary measures and non-monetary measures, and within those measures, how much they are related or unrelated. But the same thing can go even if you apply, not on poverty, but also apply the same data for development purposes. Again, you will find that uh, there is no strong association between different dimensions of development. So unless we know what is the connection, mm -hmm. what is the theory behind uh, why a rise in income will lead to health, improvement in health, or um, uh, reduction in food poverty, etc. Similarly, so th unless these connections are known, uh, policy makers only will know that we are deprived in this dimension, but nothing more. So I think that is where the, the link should be clear. Uh, these links can be either this thing is happening because of some constraints, those constraints have to be addressed, etc. So this, uh, I need your comment on that. Mm -hmm. And secondly, for any policy purposes, what is important is quickness. How quickly, even if the data is not accurate, but how quickly we can do this kind of analysis. So what can be done to make things uh, measurable and identifiable quickly? Thank you so much. Um, so first, you are absolutely right that these same questions of association arise for um, development indicators. And uh, there are a couple um, good sources on this. One is a 2006 paper by Gus Ranas, uh, Francis Stewart, and Emma Saman that came out in the Journal of Human Development and Capabilities. And they, um, it's called Beyond the HDI. And they basically looked at the sources of data that were available in 12 dimensions of well-being 
and they looked at correlations, simple correlations across them, and they found 31 indicators, if I'm not mistaken, where the correlations were below 0.6. And so they were, in a sense, candidates in their view for um, an, an aggregate uh, or, or some kinds of, of different analyses. Um, the other study of is the Human Development Index, the, the Human Development Report 2010, um, which was quite interesting because it showed the HDI trends without income and with income, and how much they were dominated, in a sense, by income. They also um, showed, I remember a measure of political freedom, and I believe there was a measure of gender, um, but they also showed the mismatch, and the title of the, the graphics was not all good things go together. And they showed how the HDI of 2010 also didn't have a strong association with some of these other dimensions. And they had simply four quadrants, good, good, bad, bad, good, bad, and bad, good, for these different indicators. So um, I think it's, it's definitely the same kind of analysis needs to be done. The question is whether to do it at the macro level, which is what Ranas, Saman, and Stuart did, using aggregate data, or whether to look at the micro level, at individual data on well-being. Um, and that, to my knowledge, has not been done, but would be quite interesting to do. Okay, I'll be very quick. I just uh, want to uh, kind of share an experience with the debate between HDI and this multidimensional. I, I was involved in the, the human development report uh, for island called Bougainville in Papua New Guinea. That was the first human development report since they got independence in 2004, I suppose. What we did after the survey, the, the traditional HDI, we found that something like around 70% of the population, what we surveyed, they reported per capita income as zero. You know, mm -hmm. when we came back, HDI indices is sold all the time. Then we went back, we went back, we, we had to spend more time with that. Then we realized that whenever we asked the question, when the investigator asked the question, it was mostly, they talked about the food security having a meal a day and all. So we had to convert this concept of per capita income more into a food security. It worked well, in fact. We, we sent it to an international peer review for replacing that income indicator to a food security. So it's still, I think, in some societies, the per capita income concept is very remote, mm -hmm. you know, that's it. And probably we'll learn something from the discussion here in the next two weeks. Mm what's in the remote communities, how well we use the concept of per capita income. You know, that is an, that's a comment on that. The second one is, as I was involved in the Assam Wellbeing Index, when we were doing that Wellbeing Index, we got a phone call from another state, Tamil Nadu, where the government officers all of a sudden they got interest in doing well-being. The first question they asked me, they are you know, I mean high-level officers, they asked me, why should they do when we have we are already doing HDI. What is the thing of doing multidimensional like well-being? So I think you, you personally answered my question that it is an achievement. HDI, I mean, shows the achievement. One of the things I added, I'm not confident whether my answer was good. I said the multidimensional concept is a more, it explains the process, whereas HDI shows is the, what is the outcome, but how you have how we arrived at the outcome, it doesn't explain clearly. It, it shows this we have, you know, this is education, this is literacy, I mean, <coughs> health and all. But still, I mean, how, how to overcome that, uh, how to convince those people that the multidimensional necessary is very good 
mm. if, if we add to the STR. Probably again, I, I'll be looking forward to some kind of convincing explanation for that one. Thank you. Thank you. Very good question. I remembered that I forgot to answer Salman's second question, so I'll do that first and then come back to yours, Odoi. So your second question was about um, periodicity of data and, and, in a sense, the quickness of releasing the analysis. In the case of Mexico, for example, they, when they have their data in, CONEVAL, which is the institute within the government responsible for m measuring and mo monitoring poverty, are able, and they have this in their PowerPoint when they present, so I'm taking it from their staff, they are able to release their national MPI two weeks later, and they put their due files online. And so I think the, the time-consuming part is, in a sense, the design of the measure because there's so many questions you have to look at, um, so many analyses that you have to do. But when the measure is designed, and when it simply has to be updated, um, when the data are clean, then in a sense the computational task is not too onerous. Um, and so I think that that, and, and Mexico's measure also does include income poverty, not consumption, which, which might take a bit more time, but it does include income poverty. So I, it's not an answer, it's, it's simply a, a, an experience to share, um, but it's certainly something that would be interesting. Now to come back to your question, Udoi, about the difference between HDI and Bhutan's Gross National Happiness Index, or Assam's Gross National Happiness Index. I, both of them measure well-being, so both of them look at all members of society, not just the poor. But I mentioned that the HDI takes the percentage of people, or the average income, GDP per capita, the average life expectancy, and the average education, and it aggregates them. But the Bhutan GNH does not do that. So Bhutan's measure has nine dimensions and 33 indicators, which is a lot. But each person has an achievement in each of those indicators. And then in Bhutan, they asked, well, how much is enough? What is sufficiency to be happy? that more of it is fine, but it may not necessarily add to gross happiness. So if I have 32 years of schooling, it might not be better than if I had gotten my doctorate much earlier. You know? <laughs> so what is the cutoff? Um, and so they set a sufficiency cutoff. And they apply that sufficiency cutoff, and then they ask in how many of these indicators, weighted, does a person achieve sufficiency? And so in a sense, it's a row-first aggregation. It shows the joint distribution of sufficiency, of achievements of people. And as a result, it not only gives a national aggregate like the HDI, but it can also be broken down um, not only by dimension, as the HDI also can, but it can show the, in the intensity and be broken down subnationally. So it's a very different construction, and that would be the answer. Does it reflect processes rather than outcomes? It depends on the indicators that are in the measure. So you could have a measure that reflects processes because it says, I don't know, do you vote? Or, you know, what is your access to this service? Um, or you could have a measure, a multidimensional measure of happiness that reflects, or well-being, that reflects outcomes. So that's an indicator design. It's not necessary to the methodology. But what is different from a multidimensional measure methodology of well-being to the HDI is that you are looking at the micro level using microdata, 
instead of what the HDI uses, which is macro data, you're looking at each person or household first.